Welcome to the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, this is a continuation of our last episode, which was about the feminism of Dorothy Sayers. Listeners who've already listened to that half have heard us discuss two of her essays on feminism, and now in this episode, we're going to be discussing her novel, Gaudy Night, and making some recommendations for our listeners. So, welcome. For any listeners who were not with us last time, with me today are Marie Haas and Alexis Neal, and I'm Katie Grubbs. Okay, so um, the task falls to me to to summarize uh, this rather long novel, but it's it's fairly quickly said, which is that in Gaudy Night, um, in rather than the story kind of I guess centering on with Lord Peter Whimsey at the center, um, you instead have uh, the story is centered. The protagonist is Harriet Vane, who had appeared previously. Um, she first appeared in the novel Strong Poison, in which for um, for people who haven't read these novels, she's um, on trial for murder. She's accused of uh, poisoning her lover. And spoiler alert, <laughs> Lord Peter gets her off. Um, and she's cleared of the charge, which probably is clear. I feel like that's not a very big spoiler, even if you haven't read the novels, because she's in subsequent novels, so clearly she was not hanged for murder. Um, and then she appears again in Have His Carcass, which is in which she discovers a dead body on the beach. And um, Lord Peter comes along to help. And so this novel is very much, I think, a couple of different things. There's the kind of surface level narrative of Harriet Vane is um, called to Oxford to the women's college that she attended, which in the book is called Shrewsbury, which is not um, the college. It's she's not naming it after a real Oxford college. Um, but she's called there by friends on the faculty because they've been experiencing some rather sinister events. Um, anonymous letters, making threats, um, crude drawings, vandalism. There's a bonfire of scholars' gowns in the quad. So it's a kind of a scary, I guess, intimidation campaign um, and, and also seems kind of calculated to reflect badly on the college. And so she's called up because she's a detective writer, but also because she has she worked the um, the mystery in half his carcass. So she has some experience in this area. So her friends call her to see if she can try to figure out who's at the bottom of these malicious disturbances. And then later she's compelled to call in Lord Peter Wimsey for help in the mystery. That's the kind of surface narrative. But then also happening on happening uh, concurrently with that is the kind of uh, development of this love story between Harriet Vane and Lord Peter Whimsey, who has, um, from the first novel that they're in together, Strong Poison, has been asking her to marry him for, like, five years, I think, in this novel. It's been five years, and she keeps saying no, he keeps asking, and so um, things kind of stand that way for a long time until this novel, Gaudy Night, things finally come to a head, and so that kind of 
relationship story is also happening. And then also you have another layer, which is that um, there's this kind of uh, rumination throughout the book on the both the advantages and possible disadvantages of living a kind of cloistered, celibate academic life so that Harriet has um, in the college around her lots of women who chose to do the job um, you know of being an academic to do the job that they felt like was their proper job which is to be a, a, a scholar rather than to pursue marriage and family but there are also some women present in the college who did take the uh, marriage and family route in addition to so that there is mrs goodwin who's a secretary who's a widow and has a small child there's another um don uh, a tutor mrs chilperic who or miss chilperic who is engaged to uh, a male scholar working in another college so you do have some women around who have chosen family and so there's this long kind of um i guess engagement with the idea of family versus job is one better than the other and i think she does a, a, a to me a really wonderful job of balancing those so that um you don't necessarily at least i i don't feel like when i read this novel that she's she's not saying you know in the end the lesson if my uh, that's such freshman language my freshman students i feel like i always feel like they have to find a lesson in a book but um she doesn't kind of get across the idea that really really you should choose the academic life because it's you know it's more intellectually rigorous and so really everybody should probably do something more like that but you know i mean get married if you want to make babies that's fine but you also don't get the other idea that she is privileging home and family and feeling like that a kind of single life devoted to to uh study is second prize she she very much adheres to the idea expressed in the essays that we talked about that each person has a purpose or a job that's appropriate for them and that that is really what that person should pursue and uh and she says in this book uh, that sometimes it's a job and that is a job and sometimes that job is another person and so um, and there are many conversations in this book that center around that. And in the end, the the kind of solution to the mystery also is revolving around the psychology of the person behind all these disturbances is very much caught up in a, uh, a negative feeling towards the kind of cloistered academic life because of the way that it uh, affected that particular the culprit's family life. So it, it, it's kind of all tied up together. And it's hard to explain without giving away the end. And I really would encourage your listeners to read it. Um, it is, I will say, it, it, it is best to read Strong Poison and have his carcass first, if only because you, you get a little bit more familiar with Harriet Vane, the character. But um, I think that probably, um, well, before I, before I talk about uh, a particular passage where some of this is brought out the most overtly, um, was was there anything that you guys uh, felt like you wanted to add to my kind of summary of what's happening in the novel that I didn't already say? No, I, I think that was a good summary. Okay. Uh, Marie, how about you? Oh, no, yeah. I don't really have anything to add to that. Okay, so sorry. I'm, I'm looking for uh, I'm looking for this particular um, this particular fact um, or this particular passage. So um, and actually from the very beginning of the book, at the very beginning of the book, Harriet and uh, and Lord Peter have a discussion in which they talk about hearts and brains and which should be considered the most important. 
should it be the heart or the brain and one of the reasons that harriet has this discussion with him is that she the, the book begins with her going back for her kind of homecoming um a friend has asked her to attend a homecoming at at oxford and she goes for the first time since she graduated having stayed away for a long time because being on trial for murdering your lover makes one fairly notorious and she had kind of been afraid to go back because she didn't know what the reaction would be um, and that's something that Sayers uh, discusses a lot and I think something that she makes a big part of Harriet Vance psychology is the fact that in you know the late 20s Harriet Vane had a very public relationship with a uh, with a man that was known to be sexual they were unmarried and it was a, a kind of a notorious thing and so then um one of the reasons that she has refused uh lord peter whimsy's affections in the past is because she thinks that it would be a burden to him to be attached to a woman such as herself and so she has to work her way through that kind of i guess um, she calls it an inferiority complex sayers calls it an, an inferiority complex but in any case um she she finally does go back for her college homecoming and only to feel very saddened because she sees women that she went to college with who are very promising scholars who she feels like have wasted their talents. Um, one particular woman she meets was was considered a, a safe bet to get a, to get a first, I think, to get um, high academic honors and maybe even did who ended up getting married to a farmer and has been helping plow the fields for 10 years and looks 50 even though they're only about 32. And that particular woman is, you know, says that she feels resentful of all the women around her because she feels like they don't understand real life. Because rather than, you know, um, hitching up to the plow, they have chosen to just stay in the academics cloister and, um, and study. So um, she kind of goes away from that experience of um, feeling disappointed that these women had wasted their potential and has a discussion uh, with Lord Peter about it. And I still cannot find. Okay, here it is. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it. And um, just to give you an idea of some of the things that she's discussing here. Um, uh, when Whimsy eventually got back from his expedition north, Harriet went to meet him in a belligerent spirit. She mentioned her Oxford visit and took the opportunity to recite to him a list of promising scholars distinguished in their studies and subsequently extinguished by matrimony. He agreed mildly that such things did happen far too often and instanced a very brilliant painter who, urged on by a socially ambitious wife, had now become a slick machine for the production of Academy portraits. And he goes on to say that um, often the partner is merely jealous or selfish, um, and they kind of agree that it's the pressure of other personalities that can, um, I guess, dampen those professional tendencies or keep a person from pursuing their proper job. And he says that um, you may say you won't interfere with another person's soul, but you do merely by existing. And she says, I suppose some people feel themselves called to make personal relationships their life work. If so, it's all right for them, but what about the others? And I thought that that was a really, really interesting point. And he responds that um, you can't really cut out human context altogether. And then he says, or should the people with brains sit tight and let the people with hearts look after them? And But what do you do if you're cursed with a heart and a brain? And that line about having hearts and brains, I think, is a key to the whole novel because she, Sayers really presents, I think, both Harriet and Lord Peter Whimsey as people who have hearts and brains. They're people who want those human connections and want to be able to to have um 
love or to have relationships. But at the same time, there are people who could never um, kind of could, could never throw themselves into caring for another person or could never make another person their job, to use Sayre's words in the book, you know, that if only because they're people with too much intellectual integrity. And that's another discussion that happens in the book a lot, too, is that uh, is that there's a whole, uh, another, whole another whole discussion of intellectual integrity and is it right to uh, tell a falsehood, for example, or plagiarize if you have a family that you need to feed and support, does that make it okay? Basically, if the claims of the heart are such that you need to uh, to betray the brain, to betray the intellectual integrity, does that make it okay? And different people in the books ha book have different ideas about this. Most of the academics say, oh no, you should never do that, ever. That would be the, the final... Um, degradation would be to betray your intellectual integrity even if it you know if you have you know 70 wives and you know or whatever that it nothing makes it worth it but then uh, another character one of the women at the university says that she thinks to her that most women don't care anything about that and that as long as uh, as long as their husbands don't go and rob a bank um, that she thinks most women don't really care where the money comes from and don't really care if something dishonest was committed to bring it so there's all these discussions all throughout of what is more important the brain or the heart can you have both can both go together and 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 it's just this it's a struggle from beginning to end before there's there's you know finally a resolution and and um that comes and I, I I think I'm being a little bit incoherent in the way that I'm saying it in part because I I really really have always loved Gaudy Night but also because I've, I've read it so many times recently trying to get ready for this that I think it's so much in my head that it's coming out a little bit jumbled so um, I'm going to give you guys a chance to talk because I feel like I've been saying too much was there anything in the novel at all on any of these ideas or topics that you guys wanted to point out any particular passages or or anything that you wanted to say about that Wow. Well, um, there was one thing I wanted to point out in connection with how some of the content in the novel overlaps with the essays and specifics and that she gives some of the same examples of how women shouldn't just copy men um, and do foolish things for the sake of appearing to be like men. Um, and she has the example of the drunk student um, climbing over the wall in both um the essays and uh, the novel. So that's one point that sh shows just the continuity of her thought there in terms uh, of that specific. Um, in terms of, as I was rereading this, in terms of what we've been talking about, of how sort of modern her writing feels, how it feels so applicable to conversations we're having today. I mean, that struck me throughout and even just in the small uh, moments in the text that don't necessarily, aren't necessarily central to these major themes that we're talking about. Um, one thing was, one example was when uh, Harriet is talking with Lord Peter um, and they're talking, uh, he, he says that um, sex isn't a separate thing functioning away all by itself. It's usually found attached to a person of some sort. And she's like, that's obvious. And that's uh, in relation to Harriet's idea that perhaps these, these series of uh, petty disturbances that are plaguing the college are due to the sexual repression because of all these women choosing academics over, over sex and over home life. Um, 
that just felt like such a modern moment because of its emphasis on embodiment and on how, like, the idea of the individual and the individual's um, embodied experience as opposed to this kind of uh, some sort of disembodied and all-encompassing idea. Um, so that was just one moment that struck me. And there's just such great such great quotations throughout, like when P- when Sir Peter says, how fleeting are all human passions compared with the massive continuity of ducks. <laughs> like, oh, it's just great moments. I think, too, tying into what you were saying, Katie, um, one of the things that's interesting to sort of watch as Harriet comes around to, to the idea of marrying Lord Peter uh, is that it's at least, I think, in part due to his expression of, of ideas that that reflect her own ideas about work. So they, they are having a discussion about one of her novels that she's writing um, and she's, she's kind of stuck with characters and they're not cooperating and she's trying to, to resolve her mystery. And he basically tells her she's never written as good a book as she could and uh, recommends basically, you know, starting from scratch and really writing a much more psychological um, novel. <clears throat> and, um, and she talks about how much it would hurt, like how difficult it would be to do that uh, almost in a, in a way where it would be it would be difficult for the heart, and he very much says, well, you know, what what does it matter if it hurts as long as you do good work, and it's very much him articulating the the philosophy that she's been um, uh, been holding throughout the whole book, and so hearing that he shares that with her is, I think, a huge part of what um, what endears him to her. Finally, it, it's his his disinclination to protect her from the difficulties of her work and then also even his his ability to restrain uh, his his desire to protect her even from physical things uh to respect that she is not yet his to protect um but it's not appropriate uh, even though he desperately wants to she has not given him permission to do that uh and and so that that treatment of her as a peer is also part of it but part of it is because he also seems to say it doesn't matter if your heart has to sacrifice if the work if it's for the work, if the work is good, um, which which reflects her own views. Um, one other thing, I mean, I, I admit the, the book is a little bit hard for me to get into, partly because um, I, I never studied in that quite that kind of academic setting. I was in law school, which is just, it's a very different, you don't have that independent scholar, you're not writing a dissertation, all of that. So uh, it was a little detail heavy for me, and it was hard for me to keep track of all the different uh, female characters running around um the campus. Uh, and honestly, I read the the Lord Peter books because I love Lord Peter and, and he, he's gone for, for most of the book uh, because he's he is uh, by circumstances prevented from being there. She can't even ask him to come um, so that she has to wrestle through all this stuff on her own. And there's you know a lot of uh, time passes. A lot of events take place um, and there's not a lot of forward progress until he shows up. And uh uh, so that, that made it, it's part of why it's not my favorite of the books, although it has a lot of really interesting things. Um, I thought it was really interesting that the, the crime being investigated, uh, unlike, um, so many of the other, uh, Lord Peter books, um, no one has been murdered. Um, and, and for most of the time, no one's even been injured. Um, but there is not nonetheless uh, a level of meanness of, of cruelty of, of viciousness and wickedness that comes through uh, even in these seemingly minor uh, crimes which just just as someone in the field of law I think is really interesting that sometimes something is as seemingly innocuous as vandalism you know it's not something we punish very very uh, 
heavily in the system, but it often is reflective of, of uh, in many ways, a more wicked heart because it accomplishes nothing other than the destruction of an injury of someone else. Uh, there is not usually a, a, a purpose. Uh, you could have a violent crime that is actually accomplishing an economic pers- purpose or or some kind of motivation that we can at least uh, understand or sympathize with. But the the, the instances that are, are described in this book, they're just mean. They are mean and they are um, they're cruel, uh, and they're not like even... parallels to cyberbullying in some in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It's this idea of it benefits. It, it's not doing the the injured person, the person who who feels like they have this grievance and that's motivating them. Uh, they're not actually being benefited by what they're doing. They're not even targeting people who are responsible for their situation. They've kind of broadened it, and it's anyone who fits into this category. Um, and and so that I just like I said, that's not really a feminism or, or a, a theological thing other than to say it's maybe a way that we can understand that there are sins that the society does not punish as strictly but that uh, that before the Lord would would be viewed as as heinous because of the, the wickedness that that it takes or the the cruelty or, or meanness behind them even if uh, the circumstances because if they called the cops it's one of those things where the police would probably not have been able to do a whole lot which is why they rely on on Harriet Um Another thing I wanted to mention briefly, uh, just because I said I would, uh, the cattery uh, is sort of mentioned in passing here. Uh, In other books, we find out that Lord Peter has set up essentially this sort of secretarial service where he employs uh, a variety of women, many of whom are in sort of the um, maybe an older woman who hasn't been employed or who uh, is retired. Uh, The kinds of people that are dismissed by society as irrelevant because they're just chatty women. Um, And he perceives that they have this incredible value for him as people who can sort of innocuously go around and find facts for him. Uh, We see that in Strong Poison. Uh, He has two different women who do that uh, very effectively. Um, And uh, yeah, that that ability to perceive in women that have been dismissed by society as having nothing more to contribute, spinsters or, or, or elder women, and to be able to see that they actually can do this great work uh, and to put them to work doing that as a sort of a charitable uh, endeavor, but also it benefits him because nobody, you know, bats an eye if a, a you know a little old lady or a spinster is is inquisitive about something, uh, they can get get information in a much more organic way than he can himself, um, and and he puts that to good use. And I think that's a really interesting um, way that he seems to respect women and their contributions in a way that others at, at that time were not doing, um, and and they do they make a tremendous contribution uh, throughout several of. Uh, of the novels, but that's, those are the only points I wanted to raise about, about the, the novel. You know, and it's funny, I didn't think to, to want to, to talk about the cattery, but I, I think that you're right, that that's a, another area where maybe Sayers kind of brand of feminism comes through and that though her novels, detective novels center on a male protagonist, he's a male protagonist who clearly values women and not in a putting them on a pedestal kind of way. But truly in a, in a kind of, I recognize your skills as a, a human person. And, and, and also maybe I recognize that you have a particular uh, female identity that is, could be useful to you in gathering information. Uh, you know, I, 
love that bit in Strong Poison where Miss Murchison, who is one of the women from the cadre, she's doing undercover work and she's learning how to pick locks and, you know, how to how to get on with her work. And I think that that Sayers, um, by doing that, she's able to feature women and feature ways that women can be uh, be successful and, and can can get the job done. But it's never she's not beating you over the head with it. And, and she says at the beginning of Our Women Human that she thinks an aggressive feminism can do more harm than good. And I wonder if that maybe that's what she meant by aggressive feminism is that, you know, she didn't write a novel. It will in this novel centers on a woman centers on Harriet Vane, who um, can't figure it out because she has all these other ideas, all these other worries cluttering her mind. Lord Peter says to her, and I finally found that section too. He says um, to her, you are usually better than that at a synthesis. I wish you could clear this personal preoccupation out of your mind. And um, and he basically says, you know, you, you, you've decided that you think you might want a celibate life, but now you're freaking yourself out, imagining that all these women around you are repressed and crazy because, you know, you're worried about that. And, you know, if you would take if you would put a scholar's mind to the job, you would have figured this out already. And it's so interesting because that's another way that, you know, he's treating her as an equal. He doesn't say, oh, well, it's hard. It's difficult. Of course, you can't figure it out. He says, you know, you could figure this out if you didn't have these other worries, if you weren't trying to figure out if you even want to have love and marriage and these things like this, you would have figured this out already. And that's so interesting that, you know, she didn't decide to write a novel in which, you know, Harriet Vane best Lord Peter by solving the crime when he couldn't do it. And, you know, so I wonder if she would have viewed that as, as a more kind of aggressively feminist, maybe, way to, to write the novel. But I, I think... Um, and, and that also, that's another great page because that's where uh, Harriet says that that she feels like she is behaving very stupidly, that she can't figure it out. And she says, but the reason why I want to get clear of people and feelings and go back to the intellectual side is that that is the only side of life I haven't betrayed and made a mess of. And he says, he realizes that and that he says, and it's upsetting to think that it may betray you in its turn. And so it's it's such a it's such an interesting exploration of the the kind of uh, the idea that a person might find solace in the life of the mind, particularly if the life of the heart has been painful. It's just it, it, the way that she kind of juggles all those different ideas is so interesting. And you're right about uh, Marie about the the kind of great one-liners. There's there's uh, this part of the book where Harriet writes the first. Um, eight lines of a sonnet and she can't figure out how to take it any further and just leaves it and then later Lord Peter finds it and he writes the sestet the six lines to complete it and um, she's you know kind of thinking about how he wrote and, and that his lines are better than hers but that section ends with uh, Sayers writing that um, Harriet went to bed thinking about someone else more than about herself which proves that even minor poetry can have its uses <laughs> which is one of my one of my favorite lines um, in any of her novels. It's just you know that I, she she has such a way with words, and I think that and this this novel in particular has some really great ones. And I think we probably need to to wind down. We've we've been at this for such a long time, and I don't want our listeners to get fatigued. But um, I will just say that one other thing, which is is, is that that Sayers the way that she kind of winds up the love story in this novel is she she spends so much time focusing on the the mental wrangling and should I do this should I not do this and they're kind of the kind of 
emotional minutiae of their, of their relationship that the resolution given at the end of the book is almost perfunctory. There's not really any kind of, um, you know, big, fancy love scene. And in Busman's Honeymoon is all about their, their marriage and then the immediate aftermath. But even in Busman's Honeymoon, the way that the story begins, it, it's not, she doesn't write it out in kind of loving detail, their engagement time. The whole first part, everything leading from them, you know, I guess getting together, what we'd say getting together now, and then to, to their wedding day, it's all in the form of letters, of various people writing to each other. And so I love the way that she kind of um, takes a different approach to writing even the love story parts um, than, than other writers might. It's just, it's, it, it's so interesting and it, and it maybe does feel a little bit more scholarly. And by the way, I didn't say this at the beginning, but um, Dorothy Sayers th has always had kind of a mixed reception because of the way that her detective fiction is written in a way that is more scholarly. And you know, so that you, in the past, there would be kind of male scholars who would kind of decry her as if she's maybe was somehow getting above herself. Like, you're just a detective writer. You're Stop trying to be fancy. Stop trying to be academic or highbrow. These are just murder stories, you know. Um, but I think that, so it's, 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 she has this kind of interesting binary identity as a writer so that these are detective stories, but there's so much more than that, particularly in this one, because you've got the whole angle of Oxford and there's all this minutia about the universities. And you're right about that, Alexis. It can be a little bit of a slog, particularly for those of us not familiar with the kind of Oxford system, so that there's all these different people and there's proctors and pro-proctors and dons, but also wardens. And it's not, um, it's, sometimes I feel like I need to sit down with a book about Oxford to really understand the book. And often in her book, she'll have people speaking Latin or French, and she just never bothers to translate any of it. Also very unusual in, uh, in a detective story and in kind of genre fiction, like we might think of it now. So, you know, she's, she's just also has a kind of interestingly complicated, I, I guess, identity, which I guess she would say is because she's writing as her human self. You know, she's not writing as a woman uh, in that way. Uh, so. That was just something else I was thinking about today. Well, we definitely need to wind down because it is getting uh, getting on. Time is getting on. So we're going to end like we always do by recommending some things for our listeners to check out besides the Dorothy Sayers text we've already mentioned. So um, why don't you go first, Marie? Sure. Um, well, I'm going to recommend something that's more specifically connected with a, another episode, actually. Um, so in episode 45, we talked about Miyazaki, and we discussed an article by Gabrielle Bella called uh, The Magic of Miyazaki's Literary Imagination, which was um, published on LitHub on September 9th. Um, so in complement to what we talked about, Bellet's discussion of Miyazaki there in relation to Miyazaki's portrayal of gender, I want to recommend an even more recent article by Bellet. Um, the title is Hayao Miyazaki and the Art of Being a Woman, and it came out on October 19th in The Atlantic. Um, and that is, uh, in the article, she talks about how Miyazaki's portrayal of gender and specifically the female characters 
um, resonates with her experience of gender, especially um, with her experience growing up and coming into her identity as a trans woman. Um, and it really goes along with what we were talking about, the nuanced ideas of, of gender in Miyazaki's characters um, in our discussion in episode 45. Um, but it fits in, too, with what we're looking at with Sayers talking about humanity being the fundamental um, characteristic of any human, after all. Um, uh, at one point, Bellet says, Miyazaki's films reinforced for me what many women come to learn eventually, that being female is not about fitting one superficial ideal or another. It is ultimately not about how you look or how you act, but about who you are. Um, so it's not necessarily about this, this really fundamental categories that are homogenous, um, but about your, your individual identity. Um, so that's a, that's an interesting article, I think, to read in, in re relation both to episode 45 and our discussion of uh, the uh, essays and novel in, in this episode. Thanks. How about you, Alexis? Um, well, uh, I have a recommendation of uh, film and then also audio content. Um, for, for those who like me, who like me really enjoy Lord Peter, um, <clears throat> The, the character that I uh, he most reminded me of, I, I haven't seen very many of the, the film adaptations of the Lord Peter stories, um, but uh, it felt very reminiscent to me of, of the Thin Man movies um, uh, uh, starring William uh, Powell and Myrna Loy. In fact, so much so that when I picture Lord Peter, I picture William Powell, even though I know Lord Peter is blonde. Um, I just I can't. It's, it's, it's too much in my mind because uh, of how witty and charming and occasionally seemingly frivolous um, William Powell's character is as a detective uh, in The Thin Man, and he also is a sort of gentleman detective uh, in, in that he's a retired um, detective married to uh, a socialite, and they, they do all of this investigating together. Um, and their 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 uh, repartee is, is is excellent. Their relationship is really fun to watch. Um, but just if you like watching that kind of uh, of detective story and, and those kinds of antics, the the Thin Man movies um, are are a, a fun way to do that. Uh, and then also just in general, more information about Dorothy Sayers. Um, uh, there is a series of talks by Jerem Bars that's available through the Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. It's a Presbyterian seminary. Uh, Jerem Bars studied at Labrie under Francis Schaefer, for those uh, for whom that means anything. Um, and he is now uh, as, a, as a pastor um, and uh, teaches uh, at Covenant Theological Seminary. And Covenant makes a lot of their classroom content available for free as an audio download. Um, and uh, several uh, series that Jerem Bars has done is, is called Tea with Jerem Bars, and he picks a different topic every semester and gives, you know, a, a dozen or so talks on the topic. And he did one uh, semester where his topic was Dorothy Sayers, and he talked about several of her novels, some of her nonfiction, uh, one of her plays, I think, some of her theological writings, um, some biographical information, etc. Uh, he's by no means a, a scholar um, in... Uh, in literature, I think he majored in it in undergraduate, but he's a pastor by training. He has an MDiv. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I don't know for sure how thoroughly researched his material is, but um, it's a way to get free audio content to tell you more about Sayers and familiarize you with her um, with her writing, particularly uh, with a theological um, focus. Uh, and he's from the UK, so he's got a lovely British accent, which, you know, is, is never a... Never a downside when you're looking at audio content, as far as I'm concerned. So um, 
those those lectures uh, I thought were really interesting. What about you, Katie? Um, I have my own recommendation, but I will just jump on board your Thin Man recommendation because those movies are amazing. They are some of my favorite ones to watch. Uh, Dave and I, I think, have seen all of them. Maybe I might have missed one or two, but you're right. The kind of witty, urbane humor and the the repartee, and I would say also the the way that um, the way that Nick and Nora Charles treat each other is, uh, I think, very reminiscent of a kind of equality that you see in those Lord Peter books. So yes, that's an awesome recommendation. My recommendation is uh, a, a another writer of mystery stories who listeners may or may not be familiar with. I'm going to recommend the novels of Marjorie Allingham. She's another kind of golden age detective writer. She was working around the same time as Dorothy Sayers. And her main detective that she wrote about uh, is called Albert Campion. Though, interestingly, in one of the novels, she just tosses off that that's not his real name, but never comes back to it in that novel. But I've always loved her novels. I feel like if Dorothy Sayers' novels and P.G. Wodehouse's novels had, like, mystery novel babies, then they would be like Marjorie Allingham's novels. She she doesn't have the kind of scholarly feel of the Dorothy Sayers books, but I I definitely think that she is a little bit more um, interested in complicated psychology than maybe Agatha Christie and she um, but like Wodehouse she has a turn a, a, a kind of talent for hilarious turns of phrase and the ways that she describes people in particular are so interestingly evocative so funny and she's she's just a joy to read and um, also if anyone's interested if you've read the Campion novels but if you never if you've never seen any of the adaptations there was a series um done with Peter Davison, who was one of the doctors from Doctor Who, uh, as Albert Campion, that's very good, and he did a wonderful job embodying that particular character, so that would be my recommendation for today, is uh, the Campion novels by Marjorie Allingham. Well, we thank, listeners, we thank you so much for sticking with us through this long podcast. We were so excited to talk about Dorothy Sayers, and um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on our Facebook page or via email if you wanted to add anything to our discussion about about her. Thank you so much for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this episode and um, all the other episodes from this year, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Christian Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Elizabeth Vermer is our intern. For Alexis Neal and Marie Haas, I'm Katie Grubbs, and uh, tune in in two weeks for an episode on Christian feminist pedagogy. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love.